going on, anesthesia nerds? Thank you so much for joining me. I am uh, Tasha McNerney. I am the host of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast, where we talk about all things veterinary anesthesia, pain management, etc. And I am really excited to have today's guest. Today's guest is a fantastic veterinary technician by the name of Tabitha Cassera. She is an elite fear-free and low-stress handling certified RVT. Uh, she is also a CCBC, and I just realized that I don't know what that means. So as soon as we get her on, I'm going to ask her about that. Um, she is the owner of a really fantastic uh, group or um, organization called Chirrups and Chatter. It's a cat and dog behavior consulting and training company in Cleveland, Ohio. So the cool thing about Tabitha is she really enjoys helping people understand and relate to their animals. She really is um, interested in that strong bond. So owners and veterinary technicians and veterinary professionals have a better relationship between, you know, kind of the, the veterinary practice, the client, and the, the animal themselves. So she is involved in writing. She's involved in consulting. She lectures on all things behavior. She is a pretty awesome, awesome wealth of information when it comes to animal behavior, and we are super excited to talk to her today. So everybody out there in podcast land, please welcome Tabitha to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am honored. Thank you so much for joining us, Tabitha. Okay, so tell me, what is a CCBC? That is a certified cat behavior consultant through the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants. And then I am a Karen Pryor Academy Certified Training Partner, which is KPACTP. We love our letters, you know. Yeah, okay, cool. So the CCBC is is a feline specific, correct? Yes. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so you're an RVT, CCBC, KPA, CTP, all of the letters. Um, how, you know, let us know. How did you get started? You were you're an RVT, and what was it about the animal behavior side that kind of sparked your interest? So the fun thing about vet med is we all have our favorite things. Tasha's is obviously anesthesia. I mean, uh, so it's the I coolest. Was lucky to find my spark. Uh, I was I worked with animal rescues and small animal practices mostly, and in my experience through that, I saw how misunderstood behavior was by, and how much suffering it not only caused animals, but also humans. And I'll be honest, like I first saw it in cats, especially. So for example, we would meet and euthanize a lot of cats on the same day. And that was very humane euthanasia. Cause by the time the client was aware of the issues, the cat has been ill for a very long time. And I would see the suffering in the human. And I'm just like, how is this not better understood? What can I do to make this better? And that's really what kind of got me exploring different behavior things and realizing like, oh, I don't think cats are subtle with their pain. I think they scream it. But um, <laughs> I under because I always say people use that as a justification. I'm like, actually, they scream their pain. We just need to learn how to identify it. Let's stop saying that subtle thing. Um, so I realized that as a vet tech, there were very minimal, accurate resources. So I was like, oh, my gosh, shelters in general public. No wonder. So many cats are being relinquished. So many animals are being euthanized because even if people are trying to do better, there's very minimal accurate resources. So that's what, because I really started working with cats. I'm really known for cats. And then I started working with dogs as well in behavior and how to better understand them, how to make vet visits better for them. 
And I realized that a lot of this stuff is preventable and that people want this information. Veterinary technicians do, the general public does. And that kind of led me to becoming fear-free and low-stress handling certified because as a technician, my job is to advocate for my patient. And although we can't control everything, there is actually a lot we can control. And there's a lot that I can do in my power to minimize stress and fear for my patients. So of course, I'm going to do that. Um, So then I got really into just behavior as a whole, and I'm working towards my BTS in behavior, and it's kind of consumed my life. But behavior is medicine. If the animal's stressed out, their vitals are affected. If the animal's stressed out, the techs are more stressed out. I mean, we see a lot of chronic cystitis and Pandora syndrome and other things, and it's all behavior related. Um, So I think as a human and animal medicine field, we really need to understand that behavior is medicine. I always joke that I'm going to get it tattooed on my forehead. Um, Because I think if we started thinking like that as practitioners, a lot of the things that like in 70% of my cases in home consults, I see underlying medical issues that were never addressed for a variety of issues, for for a variety of reasons, Um, not malicious in most cases, but I, I, the behavior issues are either caused or contributed to by a medical issue that the cat or dog has had for years that has been cleared as a fine, we all know that word, fine, um, an acceptable mm-hmm. vet visit or a clear exam. And I'm like, these things are so obvious. How did these get missed? So that's where I think education is key. And I got behavior just kind of consumed my life. That was a really long answer. No, it's a great answer. I mean, you know, it kind of plays into kind of where I went when I decided to become a CVPP, which is Certified Veterinary Paint Practitioner, uh, because I was seeing a lot of these cats that would come in and we would just think that the cats were old and cranky, right? They just get this label of like these cats, oh, they're just old. They're just really cranky. They just don't want to be touched. Well, you know, what we when we delved a little bit deeper, what we were finding is they had maybe severe osteoarthritis. Um, one of the cats, I actually did my case report on this one cat that had previously been a declaw procedure. Now, you know, we're not going to get into whether how you feel about declaws personally. I mean, I haven't I haven't assisted with a declaw in probably 10 years, thank goodness. But back in the day, this cat came in and the owners had said Man, she used to be a really sweet cat. And over the past couple years, she's just, she hides. She doesn't want to be touched. She tries to bite you if we go to touch her. And I don't know what happened with her. And we were able to talk with the owner and trace it back. And one of the things that the owner said to me was, I wish we had never gotten her declawed. Her behavior seemed to change after that. And then when we went through the records and looked at everything, we found that this animal was basically given absolutely no pain control postoperatively, which set this cat up for kind of like a terrible recovery period. And then chronic pain set in. And we know in chronic pain states that because of neuroplasticity, we can actually change the behavior, right? Or we change the way that we react to situations because we're anticipating pain all the time. So I think that there are a lot of, you're right, there are a lot of ways that you know, behavior is screaming, their behavior is screaming out to us that, hey, there's a problem, we need to look deeper at that instead of just brushing it off, like, oh, no, that cat, you know, she's just old and crabby. Yeah, labels are, I, I, I commonly talk, Susan Freeman's this amazing doctor, and she came up with something called the Unlabel Me campaign. And I talked to the techs and everyone about what language we're using, because I think 
that's really important. I'll be honest, grumpy cat is a bit of a trigger for me. (laughs) (laughs) So it's fractious. Like I strongly dislike that word because fractious means unhandable and that truly, and in many cases, those cats aren't fractious. They're actually fearful. And we actually make the issue worse with the way we approach the cat. But again, I think we really need to be careful with the labels we're using. And I, like you mentioned with that generalized chronic pain, I've seen a variety of cases as a consultant. And that's why I love the vets I work with because it's a team effort. But I I saw this one cat who was um, very aggressive. Again, I don't like labels, but they were exhibiting like withdrawn behavior, biting, hissing, growling. And immediately when I saw this cat's gait, um, because I have my clients take videos and I recommend everybody take videos of their animals acting normal for two to three minutes should be part of every vet visit. Normal. That's a great idea. And I told the client, like, your cat is so painful. And obviously I don't, I see this probably more than most people. I don't think it's super common, but the cat was so painful chronically throughout their body, dental pain. There was some facial pain. There was some osteoarthritis pain that they've generalized movement towards them as pain and felt that same, they would feel the pain response, which then is associated with fight or flight. And this poor cat was miserable. So we worked together to address the pain, manage the pain. And I still cry when I think about this. Um, And then the client sent me a video of her cat cuddling her. And she said, I haven't held my cat in six years. And he looked relaxed and calm, but his pain was managed. Yes, uh, I mean, yes, um, you know, not only chronic pain, but acute pain as well. You know, I, I pick up shifts in an ER clinic and, you know, kind of one of the things that I'm sure you've seen and what I see and it frustrates me is that we'll have animals come in, they're clearly limping or they clearly have just, you know, gotten into, they've just been hit by a car or they've just been attacked by another dog. And, you know, instead of immediately being like, hey, I can clearly see that you have a huge laceration. Let me give you some pain meds. It's I'm going to try to do a physical exam. And then when the dog reacts, they're, you know, slapped with a muzzle and labeled with a caution sticker. And <laughs> not no, to say, another- you know, not to say that there there are some dogs that are going to be extremely fearful. And then when they're in pain and in fear, it's a terrible combination. But drugs, man, drugs. And that's what our job is, right? So another thing, like I love consulting with clinics and I say this in a very kind way because I don't want it to sound condescending on the podcast, but like if I see muzzle on someone's client for or patient form, I, I tell the staff, I'm like, this is really helpful data. This tells me your staff is afraid of the dog. It tells me nothing else. Cause truly it doesn't. Instead, we should be avoiding labels and describing behavior because if that dog was hit by a car, it is appropriate behavior for them to reach out, lunge, and bite you when you are touching a painful area <laughs> versus, like you said, being thrown with this aggressive or caution label. And I'm just like, that's those labels are really dangerous. Like I see dogs and animals lose their lives because of those labels. So I obviously I get really hell bent on language we use, but I think if we're just a little more in tune to that. And then also if you see aggressive or fractious, even if you're a newer technician and behavior's not your favorite thing, you're going to be like, damn it, I don't want to deal with this cat. Oh, and 100%. Quickly and make brisk movements versus if it said fearful, even if you don't know what considered approach is, you're going to utilize considered approach and move slower 
and work with that animal better. Oh, 100%. I mean, you're you're totally correct in the wording that we use, you know, elicits a different response. I mean, if you tell me, you know, hey, this person coming, you know, this person is a very aggressive person versus, man, this person has had some stuff go on and they're really fearful right now. Like you're, you know, you, you use a little bit more empathy and you're going to approach them a little bit differently. So I think that that's, it, it is very important. Um, obviously, anybody who's listened to the podcast knows that I'm a huge fan of drugs, um, especially when it comes to these cats that are scared out of their minds. I really, really do not love when uh, we try to handle these cats without giving some kind of um, some kind of pharmacological consideration, especially because we have so many options now. Um, when I first started in veterinary med, I mean, I'm, it was about 17 years ago, we really, this was back in the days of utilizing the ISO box, right? If a cat hissed at you or looked at you funny, we're going to put them in the ISO box, which we know now we absolutely do not want to be utilizing the ISO box I mean, at, at, at all. <laughs> if you have one in your practice, um, if you have one in your practice, I would suggest that you take it outside, stomp on it very hard, and then act like you have no idea it how it happened. Missing. What happened? I love that. So if you have a technician in practice, I know a lot of technicians probably call you and ask you for advice. Uh, but if you have a technician in practice and they're they are interested in like getting a little more behavior information, what do you usually suggest to them? What's a good like website, resource, book? You know, what do you recommend to people to get started? Usually if they want to start learning more about behavior, I reinforce that behavior and tell them how great they are. And then I usually say Fear Free Happy Homes and Fear Free is a great resource because they have a lot of resources for clients because I think I love medications and sedatives and pre-visit pharmaceuticals or PVPs, but I always joke that I hear things like the trazodone and peanut butter didn't work. It's a lot more than that. <laughs> um, yes. So I, I think those are really good resources that have a lot of different, like Fear Free I love because they're always updating the resources. It's a lot of different experts and credentialed people, and it's all science-based information that's accurate. So, and they, they provide a variety of information, like this is it during a dental or during an emergency, because we hear a lot of, you know, people are like, but what about this specific situation? I got you. <laughs> you can do this. Um, so I think that that's a really great place to start. And then also... There is the Cooperative Veterinary Care book by Alicia Howell and Monique Fairchild, as well as the Behavior Tech book by Debbie Martin and Julie Shaw. And I am a really huge fan of those books and just having, like, even if you don't read them front to back, but just have as a resource, because if behavior is not your favorite thing, I totally understand that. Honestly, guys, I know it's crazy. Anesthesia is not my favorite thing. Oh, um, shots I, fired. <laughs> but I know about anesthesia and pain pain management is one of my favorite things, but I'm aware of it and I know where to go when I need it. So I think with behavior, even if it's not your favorite thing, it's really important for you to have resources that are up to date and accurate that you could go to, to provide your clients with or to do the right thing. So like Tasha said, if you have a fearful cat in your practice who's coming in and it's a wellness appointment, so it's not an ER appointment, for example, and the cat is, I'm a big fan of body language scores, just like pain scores. If we're not measuring it, how are we going to help it? Um, but I'm a big fan of fear, anxiety, and stress scores or body language scores because getting the whole staff on the same level 
And then if like, let's say the cat is a, I'm just using an example, fear-free example, but an FAS of four or five, which is the red, that cat is compromised, is like health and well-being is compromised. We're seeing elevated blood pressure. We're seeing physiological changes and also, of course, mental trauma. Um, so in that place to do the best medicine, I'm going to, of course, utilize fear-free feline-friendly handling control the environment and what I can control to make it less stressful, but use PVPs and anti-anxiolytics and sedatives. But that's part, it's not like I want my job to be easier, which obviously we do, but I think it's like Tasha said, if you have a really painful dog, you're going to treat the pain and then do the, well, ideally. Ideally. (laughs) And then do the exam. Anxiety is a very real thing. And when the animal's more anxious, it's a lot less likely for you to get your you're correct. Cause people are like, Oh, we'll get it done. It'll be fine. But actually you don't get it done. And your sample is hemolyzed. It's not appropriate. It's not the greatest sample. When, if you would have just taken your time and taken five minutes to allow the cat to adapt, take the carrier part. Cause we never pull cats out of carriers ever. Um, <laughs> and took, took a couple more minutes, maybe gave PVP as gabapentin or something else. Let the cat sit in a quiet area with classical music for 90 minutes if the client because sometimes these cats come to us and we didn't be able we couldn't set it up ahead of time then you do the exam you get all your diagnostics plus more plus the cat is not going to have a horrible experience we'll go in the carrier next time you'll see them again versus if you push them over threshold they're upset you get bit you didn't get your samples your samples aren't accurate let's let's be honest that blood pressure and temperature should not be used for diagnosing they're inaccurate. And though, though that kind of stuff I see happen a lot where cats are diagnosed with specific issues or prescribed medications based on, they're not looking at the, the vitals in context, if that makes sense. Yes. And I think that at least I used to work for a clinic that if we had wellness visits um, and the cat came in and if the cat was too upset, if it got to a point where the cat was either swatting or biting and it really got, you know, if the cat was really pushed over the edge, we would do something that I used to talk about in lecture and I kind of still do that people really were freaked out about. And that was we would stop, talk to the owner and reschedule the appointment. And I don't know, you know, what your opinion is about that or how you feel about that. But sometimes people would look at if we had to stop and send them home and bring them in another day under different circumstances, you know, regroup. Um, Sometimes people would look at that as kind of a defeat. But I don't really think that that's the case. Oh, definitely. I think I'm a huge fan of that. I think that that's a huge win. And that's where, again, I think in both human and animal medicine, we don't really consider mental health because we'll be like, they'll be fine. But I see these, I mean, I see animals who, for example, as a consultant, it's been really interesting being in all the worlds because I've had cats who were prescribed seizure meds and they weren't giving them and the vet didn't know. So obviously mm. I'm really concerned, but I'm going to talk to that client about, cause I do medication training where cats happily go to a mat and open their mouth. And it's not that hard. You could do it too. Um, but for example, we're not really setting that client up for, I'm seeing a lot of different perspectives now. Like I used to say, you know, 10 years ago, this, this client's not compliant. And now I'm like, I didn't set that client up for success. I gave them meds and told them to scruff their cat and open the mouth, which I would not do anymore because that's an outdated handling technique. And then we see a bond break. They can't give the meds and then they don't give the meds and we don't hear about it. 
And it's the same thing with these vet visits. Like the cat had a horribly traumatic event experience. The owner can't get the cat into the carrier or the dog that won't even walk into your practice. And a lot of people think that's funny. That dog has generalized that fear to not only that doctor or that facility, but some dogs actually start exhibiting signs of fear and stress during the car ride there. So I think we need to realize how amazing animals are. They're always learning. We can't just say, stop, stop learning right now. So when it comes to wellness, for sure, I'm definitely going to, I've stopped a lot of things before the animal goes over thresholds. And I'll be honest, I do behavior for a living. So communication and being able to explain things is something that I've gotten really good at. I've never had a client get mad at me about it. And I understand there's lots of factors that are involved with that. I've had one or two. I remember this one, her dog was coming in for a rabies vaccine. We know those clients, I'm not judging, but let's be honest guys. And she wanted me to sit on her dog because that's what she's used to. And that's where, again, I'm not, I never attack other veterinary professionals, but I also say like, because from, from a client's perspective, they just lay on my dog and get it done. And they don't understand because we're progressing. That's why we call it practicing medicine. We're improving. So I explained to them, like, this is why we don't do that. This is what this results in. And that woman got upset with me. But honestly, that woman was never going to come back anyways. Right. <laughs> like she comes in every, she came in for a rabies vaccine because her dog bit someone. And obviously I, I wanted to address that in an empathetic way, but that's like one in a hundred clients. Most of the clients because I explain to them everything I'm doing. The cat goes right into a room. I'm taking the carrier apart, or I'm going to have your dog wait in the car to avoid, because a lot of dogs have reactivity towards other dogs and they're pushed over thresholds in the lobby. And then we're like, now we want to examine you and do all this other stuff when I could have just had you go right into the room and avoid those triggers. So there's a lot of little things that we could do to prevent the animals from being over threshold before we even see them. And when we explain it to clients in a very kind way where we understand it, and I think that's where learning how to, because I communicate way better, guys, than I did when I was first learning about behavior, because I can explain everything that I'm doing and why it's best for the client and address the client's concerns and listen to them. And I think that's why I don't have issues with it. And honestly, I was telling Tasha on, we were just chatting prior, I my clients love me. They stick with me forever. When they have an issue with their cat or dog, they call me before they call their vet. And I don't want it to be that way. But also, I'm glad that they call me then instead of check the internet because I tell them the right thing to do. <laughs> but I've seen like these clients never forget you. Like I have clients like that cat example. I have a client who whose cat had a lot of medical issues and behavior issues. And she still, I saw her three years ago. She still checks in with me every three to six months to tell me how great I am. You guys deserve that reinforcement too. So clients remember this stuff and then they tell their friends. And even though it might be challenging and not every client may understand it, every client may not understand why you're doing pre-anesthetic blood work, but are you? I hope so. Because that's medicine, like that's appropriate medicine and welfare. And I, I think that's how I think of PVPs or stopping something before the animal's threshold over threshold, like you said, Tasha. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, obviously we are still, I mean, one of my favorite quotes is, you know, as you learn better, you do better. And I'm constantly trying to to do better and encourage other people to kind of just 
take their stuff to the next level as they get to learn stuff. And I know we have a lot of work to do. Um, I don't know if you remember, uh, there was a couple, maybe it was even a year ago, there was like a viral video going around. Um, and a lot of my colleagues shared it and they were, it thought it was hilarious. It was a, like a, a mastiff. And um, I think they were trying to place a catheter on him. And it was like three people holding down this dog. And I think the caption was like, get ready for the rodeo. And this girl ended up riding this dog out of the room because the dog was so freaked out with three people on it. It just threw these technicians basically around and then took the one for a ride. And I was like, wow. I mean, everybody was laughing and it was so hilarious. It's so funny. That's but- hard for me thankfully I did not see that video okay Um, yeah you're good but it was it was like a big thing in the veterinary technician circles and I thought okay this is a great learning opportunity for us you know (laughs) but it It, brings me to kind of talking about because you know this being the veterinary anesthesia nerds podcast and we do like to talk about some case-based stuff. So uh, I'm going to throw kind of like a case scenario at you and kind of get your perspective about that. Does that sound cool? Let's do it. All right. So this is actually one of the posts that was uh, recently on the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds page. And this was from a technician writing in and she is saying, I'm having a lot of pushback about pre-medding our patients prior to IV catheter placement. I'm really sick of seeing multiple people laying on top of dogs, wrestling with them and fighting with them to stay still and trying to do it without meds. What can I do? You know, um, I think that this happens a lot in practice. Like you said, we just want to get it done, especially if they're coming in, they're spay, they're a neuter procedure. I see this a lot with anesthesia where we just want to get that IV catheter in so we can get that surgery day started. But what would your advice be for this technician to kind of go back and talk with the rest of the staff as to how they could create a better experience and not be sitting on top of dogs that aren't enjoying that IV catheter? So I've had a lot of situations where I was put in like this and I've advocated for my patient and me um, because obviously I'm concerned about your well-being as well Um, because from a standpoint, like a health standpoint, they're really, that's a really dangerous situation to be putting you in. Um, obviously I care about the animal too, but I think we need to really consider like the risks that we're allowing our techs to have, which is why so many of us have bites and pain, which is a problem. So what I would do in that situation, it depends. I would find, this is where it gets tricky. Um, because I've had a lot of different experiences. I would find your main doctor or the owner, or if they're both what their motivation is. So this is where, cause sometimes you would think that just saying this is not great medicine, um, that your anesthesia is going to be higher, which is putting this animal more at risk. It's going to take a lot longer and a lot more drugs to put this animal under an appropriate level of sedation and or anesthesia. Um, it's going to be more expensive. I mean, I have so many, so many reasons to why we wouldn't just get it done because actually what you're doing is making everything harder. You're not just getting it done. And I think that's the biggest thing. Like, if I gave you a pre-med, let it sit and gave you like Serenia to, or, or whatever you may do and that pain medication, cause ideally we should be doing that, um, prior to wind up and prior to the pain happening, you're setting that animal up for success to recover better. Cause how many animals do we know? I've worked at practices where every animal wakes up not great. And we're like, it's the dog guys. It's not the dog. <laughs> it's, it's your anesthetic protocol. You need. Oh you need- yeah. yeah. I mean, don't, 
don't get me started on post-op, you know, dysphoria versus pain and the fact that we just want to label everything as opioid dysphoria. Oh, he's dysphoric. He's dysphoric. Don't worry about it. Just sit on him until he calms down. Oh, man. And that's what we see. Like, I can, if someone explains to me something, I don't even have to be, obviously context is important, but like, for example, with that large dog, I bet you it took a lot longer for his pre-meds to sit in. And to be fair, you're actually making your job a lot harder by not giving, that's why they're called pre-meds. Um, so most places give the pre-meds and then place the catheter. So obviously you can definitely bring up all of those things. Like we're increasing anesthesia, we're increasing the dog's anxiety, which is increasing his risk, increasing cost. Uh, I'm concerned about my safety. All of those things are very valid, but I'll be honest with you. A lot of times those aren't enough, which is something I've learned to deal with because that should be enough. So what I would do is find that person's motivation. If the business owner or the person that you go to to talk to, because every practice is different, if their motivation is money, then I would talk about how we're using a lot more anesthesia. These dogs are waking up in a rough recovery. The clients, their healing is delayed because all of that is very real. And then if their concern is the animals, because I know all of our concern is the animals. I don't mean this in a malicious way, but again, sometimes me explaining it's better for the animal is not enough in my experience. So that's where you can talk about all these other things. Um, You could take a stand too, because I always tell techs, especially because I've been that tech who's been the only one that was doing maybe feline friendly or low stress and was o- was the only one doing behavior at the time. No matter what, you are setting an example all the time. And I'm sure Tasha has talked about this too. Ethically, you need to do what's comfortable and safe for you. So I don't think it's unrealistic to say, I don't feel safe doing this. Because um, to me, that's enough to talk about protocols. And then of course, there's so much research. So ideally, your practice manager or vet owner is motivated by research, but again, not everyone I work with is. So that's where I say like, find their motivation. And if it's research, like sometimes I just casually, like on the lunch table, I'm super cash. I'll just leave some papers out about um, how stress affects anesthesia and things like that. <laughs> it's super uh, like subconscious, but it, it gets the conversation started or you could be more direct depending on what works well and say, here's three studies I've highlighted things that have been verified by my concerns. How about we just try this with two dogs this week? So start small. That's the other thing. Start small, even though I'll be honest, in a perfect world, every practice I would work wouldn't declaw and wouldn't would use fear-free feline-friendly handling, would be aware of behavior. But that can be really overwhelming if I just come in running with that. So I start small. Like, um, for example... In my contract, I'm not assisting in surgeries that are declaws, and I'm going to provide resources for clients who want to declaw. So I'm providing solutions and meeting them where they're at. So for example, here, you could be like, can we try these with two patients this week? And honestly, I would record the post-op and I would record the vitals and gather that data and present it at your next meeting. That was a lot of uh, answers to that question. 
No, that's good. I love it. And I love the subtleness of it, too. I mean, I've just gone where now I just post uh, <laughs> I just post not so subtle things to my Instagram <laughs> stories to get people to stop using flipping midazolam on cats that are over the threshold. <laughs> no, and that's where I think like I'm in a place right now where I, obviously I'm a consultant and a, I own my own business. So I go into practices to help them be better at this. So but I know I've worked at a place too, where again, I was the only tech at that time, again, utilizing these techniques. And I had to be, for example, like I would draw blood. I would get, um, why am I totally zoning out about the test? I'm totally zoning out about the test, but I would need nine mLs of blood, for example. Okay. Thyroid? Which one? Is it a thyroid test? No, I'm totally zoning out. It's the cat one. Oh, my God. Oh, the cat. No, I'm thinking of a, the dog where we used to pull all the blood. Listen, if it doesn't involve drugs, I really don't know. <laughs> but basically, you would need, like, a large amount of blood and, oh, a GI panel. Um, If you say so, sure. <laughs> a GI panel. You would need a, a good amount of blood. And I, again, I was new at this clinic. And although we should all be learning from each other because I am good at some things. Other techs are good at some things. I think it's a beautiful thing. That's often not how it comes off. So for example, instead of coming in and saying, we're going to start doing this, I just, you can't stop me from doing what I'm doing. <laughs> so I handle the cats in the way I do. For example, I don't scruff. I utilize um, a non-slip mat. I'll utilize food, low distraction, all that fun, quiet area, all that fun stuff. And I would get the whole sample beautifully in one poke and the, the sample is way more accurate from a diagnostic standpoint too versus another tech who stabbed that cat eight times or poked let's use the word poke poked <laughs> that cat uh eight times and the sample got 0.05 mls each time yeah um, and honestly within two to three months the techs were like hey can you show me some stuff so Obviously, you have to be patient and it's hard. And ethically, you need to do that's another thing me and Tasha were talking about. Ethically, you need to do what's comfortable for you. I've left, I told her about a job that I literally walked out of because of some stuff that went down. And I'm okay with that decision. But ethically, you're comfortable where you are and I'm comfortable where I am. And I think that's a big part of our jobs. We need to be comfortable with where we're at. And if you can't accurately advocate for your patients and you feel ethically compromised a lot, maybe that clinic's not a good fit for you. Yeah, 100%. Like, that's what it's about, right? That's why we all got into this is to advocate for our patients to kind of be their voice to make sure they're not experiencing stress, pain, fear, etc. Oh, man, there's so much here. So much great content. Um, uh, thank you so much for being a guest on our show today, Tabitha. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor for real. So in the show notes, you guys, I'm going to put a link to the Chirrups and Chatter website. Um, Tabitha, are you speaking at any conferences coming up soon? I am speaking at Midwest Veterinary Conference online and then uh, Humane Society's Expo in April, which is more rescue geared one. And then I do a lot of local events like webinar. Well, right now, guys, safety first webinars. Um, because I think education to the masses is key. So I do a lot of feline friendly behavior webinars just for access to everyone. Um, so definitely check out my website for that too. 
Awesome. All right. So we will put all those links on there in the show notes, you guys. Thank you so much for being a guest today, Tabitha. I uh, just learned so much and hopefully everybody is going to take this information, um, use it to make the best experience possible for their patients out there. Thanks so much for having me. Remember, advocate for your patients and advocate for yourself. Okay. Bye, guys. Bye.